Matthew 26, 36 to 46 reads as follows. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples, said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Your will be done. We're speaking about prayer. We're speaking about the challenges of prayer and the types of prayer. We've spoken about prayer as relational and relationship building, and it's one of the key concepts. Today, we're speaking about a different type of prayer. We're speaking about how prayer changes us and how we need to conform to what God does in our lives through prayer as well. We understand that as Jesus prays in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And that actually is consistent with the way he taught us to pray. Because if we read the Lord's Prayer and say Matthew chapter 6, it's also found in Luke, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see Jesus not only teaches us how to pray, but he also models how we should pray. The challenge for us is this, and the question we do ask is, do we pray, your will be done, thy will be done, or are we more concerned about praying, my will be done? It's an interesting concept for us to stop and think about, and I pray that it'll take us on a journey that will lead us closer to God this morning. We are all inherently there is a level within us that is selfish and rebellion, and there's rebellion in us. And I think it's because, and we can talk about this another time, about the fact that in each and every one of us there is the sinfulness of this world, and we have the sin condition that is dealt with through the cross, but we still live in the presence of sin. I know when you look at a kid, have you ever seen teenagers when they speak to their parents? They seem to know exactly what to do. Am I right? I sometimes wish I had the certainty of a teenager. Life would be so simple. And it's interesting as a teenager says to their parents, now this is exactly what you need to do because that's what I want. And we think, one day you'll grow up. And then we become parents. And you know what we do? We say to our kids, well, this is exactly what you must do because this is what I want. And somehow inside of us, there's this part of us that really wants to see my will done no matter where I am in life. And the truth is, when it comes to our time of prayer, when we speak to God, a lot of the time we do exactly the same thing. God, I'm coming before you this morning to pray and tell you exactly what you are missing. 
you don't know what's going on in my life. So I need to tell you what's going on in my life. And I need to tell you exactly the way you need to deal with it because I know what is best for my life right here, right now. Not in this church. Thank the Lord. Let's move on. But, you know, in other churches, let's not go there. The truth is we do pray our own prayers and we pray them for different reasons. Sometimes it's because there's an inherent selfishness. There's a level of narcissism that we all kind of have. It's just a question of how much of it. Let's just own it and move on. But there's also other reasons. Sometimes we pray a certain way because we just have a bad theology or a bad framework. There's different ways we see the world. One of the big things that kind of hit the world many years ago and is still around, things like prosperity theology, prosperity theology where we really believe God is going to solve all our problems and, and God died on the cross that I will never suffer in my life again. Another theological problem we have is a lot of people don't have a theology of suffering and how God works in and through those things. And so because we don't have that, we pray a certain way, believing we're praying in the will of God, but actually we're not. And so we have to kind of come around again and say, God, am I praying my will or am I actually praying your will be done? Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 to 9. What a great scripture. If I haven't quoted it 10 times, I probably need to be quoting it more. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. We need to understand that to pray my will often is going to come into conflict with God's will because God's will is very different a lot of the time from our will. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we pray, whether we like it or not, whether we are prepared to accept it or not, I believe each and every one of us have to navigate a layer of bias. There's always bias in our prayers. Let's own it. It's there. Let's deal with it. There is a level of perspective where we don't always have the big picture. We're praying according to our perspective, according to our bias. We have our own opinions on issues. We like to pray according to our own opinions. And really, we have our preferences. Anybody prayed, God, I just think this would be the best way to do it because I like that and that will really suit me well. Every time the lottery hits over a billion dollars, prayers in this country increase dramatically. Very much so. And I'm not sure people are always praying God's will into their lives. So let's talk this through just a little bit this morning. And let's see, why do we pray? What leads us or drives us to the place of earnest prayer? There are different reasons we pray, and we've spoken a bit about that. But one of the things, reasons we pray is out of worship. We'll come into a corporate setting like this and we'll pray and we'll say, uh, this is a time when as part of our worship, we quieten our hearts and we, we say the Lord's Prayer or even as TJ led us this morning into a beautiful prayer where we are continually praying and saying, God, as my worship, I'm connecting with you, I'm talking to you, I'm praying. And so prayer comes through worship. It's a time when we are devotional, we are reflective, we are turning our focus towards God. And so worship could be one of the reasons that we choose to pray because as Christ followers, we want to pray. But then there's another thing that happens, and this sometimes seems to be the more powerful way of prayer, which sad to say, but is true, is when we find ourselves in a place of crisis or trial or troubles. It's interesting how much 
troubles and trials actually move us towards God. How much we actually find ourselves pushing into God when things really get tough in our lives. There are times of hopelessness. People turn to God sometimes when they don't know where else to turn to. Where do I find my hope? What can I do in this situation? In the time of desperation? In fact, we see this all the time. We see this even in church. When people go through hard times, and, and this is a sad thing, and I, I, hate, I hate to say it, but it's a true thing, and it's, a, it's one of those, those things we have to wrestle with. If people go through hard times, a lot of the time when they don't know where else to turn, they turn to God. I'm sad that we do it only as a last resort. We should be doing it as a first resort. People literally will show up in church that have never been to church before because something has gone wrong in their lives. We saw this after 9-11. The churches literally, there was a significant spike in church attendance directly after that. People were looking for something to hold on to. We see this happen a lot of the time when people find themselves in, in, in some kind of maybe a sickness that they don't know how to deal with or they're wrestling with some kind of sickness. Suddenly somebody you've never heard from in months or years texts you and says, are you still going to church? Could you pray for me? I just got a bad diagnosis. And you know what we do? We love them and we pray for them and we pray that God will use that. We don't want anybody to go through that kind of stuff. When there's been an accident, the first thing we do is we reach out and say, God, we don't know what's going on here. Can you help us? I had a friend once who really kind of pushed in to the life of the church purely because he was going through a crisis within his workplace and he was trying to figure out what was happening in his, in his job and, 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 and what his future was and what, what the whole future was for him with regards to career. And he really that pushed him into the local church and he was, God, help me. I know somebody else who, when a family member went through incredible uh, uh, health challenges, just drew so close to God. But these are things in those bad times. And those prayers are so much different to the worship prayers. Those are, help me, Jesus. God, I need something from you. The truth is that the troubles we have in life, God doesn't bring them to us. We live in a fallen world, and so they're going to be here until Jesus comes and he liberates us from the presence of sin in a sinful world, we are going to continue to have these things. But the Bible teaches us in Romans 8.28 that even though they don't come from God, God does use them. We know all things work together. All things, the good things, the bad things, all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. Life's troubles may not come from God, but he does use them for good. In the passage that we read today, very simply put, here's Jesus. He is, we see a level of his humanity. We see the desperation in him. We see the anguish in him. It is one of those, you know, when you're painting a picture about your Messiah, you don't show him as deeply anxious, agitated, concerned, it doesn't seem like you want to make your Messiah look weak, but he's not weak, he's human. And that's why when we pray, we can go back and say, he understands because he was there. He has seen it. He has walked that path. He knows what you're praying. Look at the words that the writer uses here. It's, and that Jesus says to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. 
He says, stay here. Stay awake with me. And going a little further, he throws himself on the ground and he starts to pray. Contrast that with the disciples. What are the disciples doing? Hey, it's nap time. Do you know what the difference is? Jesus knows what's going on. He can see the future. He has been in communion with the Father. He, has, he knows that there's this journey. There's this cup he needs to drink from, this bitter cup. Disciples are like, hey, tomorrow's life is normal. Maybe 8,000 people are going to feed tomorrow. Walk on water. I like that one. What's he got in store for us? They don't see it coming. He warns them. He tells them. They're like, hey, I'm tired. They go to sleep. You see the difference? The one that there's an urgency in his spirit. We all have that urgency sometimes. And, and here's, here's an interesting thing. Think about this for a second. Isn't it interesting how sometimes you could sit next to somebody in church and they have that urgency in their prayer, but the person next to them seems to go, oh, I hope it works out. Know what I'm talking about? It's interesting how we live in a world that that contrast is there all the time. Maybe we need to grow in our understanding and our empathy of how we enter into people and into their, their suffering and say, how can I carry this burden with you? Instead of being sleeping in the garden, I want to stand with you. Maybe there's something there for us. As a community of faith, maybe that's something we should really pray about as well. Let's move on. So he goes a little further. He throws himself on the ground and he prays. My father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. How did Jesus pray in troubling times? How does he, what does he say? Now, now this is, this is not a nice prayer. And I, I'm, it's a great prayer, but it's not a nice prayer. Like, the Bible's great. It's always great. It's fantastic. But think for a second. Did Jesus hear his prayer? Absolutely. Jesus heard his prayer. I mean, God heard, God heard the prayer of Jesus. Jesus prayed, the Father heard. We see in John as well, when he stands from the tomb of Lazarus, he says, um, he prays this, I, I'm saying this, I know you've heard me. I know you always hear me. He knows. God has heard his prayer. In fact, Jesus has been in communion with God and he has been in a place of fellowship with God to the point that he knows what's coming. There's a prophetic. He can see the future, knows where he's going. He is incredibly anxious at this moment. And then he comes before God and he goes, here's my prayer. Please, I don't want to do this. And God does what? God goes, sorry man, you're going to have to walk this journey. That's why I don't like that prayer. And I like the prayer, but I don't like the prayer. But I like, you understand what I'm getting at? Because how many times do we get before God and we say, Lord, I'm going through something. God, there's this journey that I have to walk. God, there's this, this burden that I've got to carry. There's this trying, there's this, this, this path, this valley of the shadow of death. And our prayer is, God, take it from me. And like, he doesn't. And then we're like, well, I don't know if God hears my prayers. No, he heard your prayers. Well, then why didn't he answer me? 
Because maybe we were praying, my will be done, not thy will be done. Now this, this, is, this, this leaves us with all sorts of thoughts. So when we pray, and let's remember this, prayer is not manipulating God. We're not trying to manip manipulate God. We are trying to understand the will of God. That's why Jesus' prayer is so powerful, because he expresses his will, but then he shifts it from what he wants into what he wants God. This is God. This is me. This is God. And that is a very important concept for us to understand. We're always going to have levels of rebellion, levels of bias, theological falls. All these things are going to be there when we pray. And when we pray, we assume we know exactly how God should answer our prayer. And when he doesn't answer it that way, we get frustrated. And in fact, we can even get to the point where we lose our faith because God hasn't done what we believe he should have done. That's a scary concept. But you know, here's the thing. God knows what I don't know. Think about that for a second. So, so when I'm praying, I am here at this point in time. I have a past, I have a future. I know my past, I think I know my future, and I'm deciding what I think God needs to do for my future. God knows my past better than I know my past. God knows what I've been through. He knows what has shaped me. He knows me more intimately than anybody else. In fact, God knows me better than I know myself. You can go sit in therapy for 20 years. God still knows you better. Okay? God knows what makes you tick. He knows what's good for you. He knows what's bad for you. Okay? He knows what you need in the moment. And here's the thing. God knows your future. Now we come to the point, God, this is what I need and I want this and this is how it needs to work out. Yeah, I don't know. I think some of us are so controlling and I probably need to put myself in that, 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 that kind of category as well. Lord, I've got my future planned out. Just make sure you get on board. And God goes, your plan is not going to work. Because God knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. He is the, begin the first and the last. He knows things you don't even know. And He knows what is needed for you. He knows what's needed for the people around you. He knows what's needed for your family. He knows everything about you. And He moves into that area. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God's justice is superior to our justice. So when we try and get justice, let's let God be the judge. When we look for righteousness, God's righteousness is greater than we could ever have righteousness. The love that we claim to have for the people around us, well, God's love is superior to that. The grace we want to have, well, God's grace is bigger than that as well. And so there's a sense where we need to say, this is me and how I understand myself. This is how you understand me and I need to surrender to you because you know me better than I know myself. In that prayer he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass me. That's the, what I want. And then he does this, yet not what I want, but what you want. Here's the thing. What we should want is what God wants. What we should want is not what we want, but what God wants for us. And as we journey together in prayer, God will take us to that place. Let's move on and let's bring things to a close.
in just another three hours or maybe four. <laughs> so what happens when what we want and what God wants, the two don't align? How do we do that? How do we, get our, how do we handle that? How do we kind of navigate that space? Matthew chapter 26, 44 to 46 in our passage, this is interesting. Jesus pray, prays, I want this, but God, if you don't want it, I'm going to go with you. I want this, but I'm going to go with you. And then he says, so leaving them again, he goes away, prays. He says the same thing a third time. He comes to his disciples and then he says, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's almost like pray, pray, pray. Okay, done, let's move on. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, pray, pray, run and hide. He's like, let's step into the will of God. How can he do that? How does he have that boldness, that confidence to step into that? And this is, this is the thing. Uh, Jesus rises promptly. He embraces God's preferred future for his life. It is so difficult for us. And I've said this. We could shipwreck our faith unless we learn how to understand that in God, God's will is superior to our will. When we're hurting and we're wounded, we often are tempted to say, God doesn't love me. We're tempted to say, God has abandoned me. We're tempted to say, God is far from me. We're tempted to say, well, Christianity is just a waste and there's no such thing as just a false religion. Why? Not because God has been unfaithful, but because God hasn't danced to the tune that you've been playing. Once again, that's manipulation. God does not want to be manipulated. You take one chapter, so in Matthew 20, 26, verse 46, and you take one chapter ahead and you, further, and you go to Matthew 27, verse 46. Look at this statement of Jesus. He hangs on the cross. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried, with a loud, cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a, what a passage. Lord, take this cup from me. Steps into it. Walks through it. He's now on the cross and he's like, God, why have you forsaken me? But I want to draw your attention to two words in that. Just two words. My God. Even in the midst of feeling abandoned, he doesn't say, that God just left me. Who is this God who claims to be my father? He still, in the moment of absolute abandonment, says, you are still my God. May the Lord work in me because I don't know how you get to that place. Amen? You hear what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe there are some things we can learn from the life of Jesus. One of the reasons we should be able to go through and walk that journey. One of the reasons, even in the place of seeming abandonment or not getting our way in prayer, the reason we persevere is because there came a time in our life when we said, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. And what we did at that point is we said, not my will be done, but your will be done. 
And that means that he's not always going to do it the way we want him to, because if he always does it the way we want him to, then we are still Lord of our own lives. But if he does it a way that we don't want, and we say, okay, I'll still submit in this time, then we are conscientiously submitting to the Lordship of Christ afresh again. The reason we should be able to do that is because if he is Lord, we don't only serve him in the good times, we also serve him in the bad times. Job says in the NIV Bible, and I'm using it because different versions have different nuance on this passage, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Every decision to submit to God's will over our own is a decision to keep Jesus as Lord of our lives. And I will actually end with this. Jesus had a relationship with God. The Father and the Son. Two scriptures, you won't see them up there, but I'll give them to you. John chapter 7, 29. Jesus says, I know him. I know him. Because I am from him and he sent me. Of the Father, Jesus says, I know him. When it comes to John chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. And then he says, just as the Father, he knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Because Jesus did not only know him, he could trust him. Because he knew him. And he knew that he was a God of love. He knew that he was committed. The Father was committed to the Son. And even in the darkest hour, he had the confidence to know, and, and this is just obviously me kind of working with the texture, to know that even in that sense, he is still God. He is still my God, even though I don't understand. What I do know is he's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's faithful even when I am not faithful. He is true. He is righteous. He's somebody who's closer than I can ever imagine. He was there in the beginning. He'll be there in the end. I can trust him even when things don't go my way. And so the question for us is, do we know God enough to trust him in the times of our greatest trials?